0: Australia's strategic challenges. All of this is happening in a in an environment where there are not many rules and norms, not clearly established governance. So we're facing some really interesting and some really difficult challenges and we're doing it at a time where there's a real contest of ideas between great powers. Countering cyber threats.
1: We actually provide a warning to every Google user that's targeted by a government backed threat actor. We give them a big red warning on either their handset or on Gmail or somewhere else. And we warned 41,000 users last year.
2: UK Indo Pacific strategy.
3: There is a recognition that whilst Russia is the acute military sort of a threat to the Euro Atlantic area and the UK, there is also the recognition, however, that looking ahead, China is the systemic competitor.
2: This is Policy, Guns, and Money, the ASPI podcast with me, Olivia Nelson. To kick off this episode, Dr. Alex Bristow speaks to ASPI newcomer Beck Shrimpton, who'll head up this year's Sydney Dialogue. They discuss the strategic threats Australia faces, including the challenges posed by emerging tech and the Australia-China relationship.
4: Beck, welcome to ASPI. I think this is your second day here, so straight into a podcast. I was hoping to draw on your experience, your extensive experience of Australian defence and foreign affairs. I think you've been working in this field for over 20 years. And maybe to take your, your views on the strategic challenges that Australia is facing. Have we ever seen anything on this scale and complexity before?
0: Well hello Alex. Thank you for the welcome and it's terrific to be here at ASPE. I've worked closely with ASPE before and I have to say I'm very proud to be here as well as happy to to be in the building and, and working but in DC I often had reflected back to me the excellence of, of ASPE's work and people. So, um, so great to be here and thank you for the opportunity to talk today so early in my time. The short answer to your question on, you know, are we ever facing or have we ever faced scale and complexity of the threats that we are today, my short answer is no. The threats that we face today go well beyond traditional military domains, even just thinking about military threats alone. We have newer domains of of space and and cyber that are information dominant, that are untested, where we haven't really seen what's what's possible, what kind of political and what kind of material fallout there is from from actions. In cyber in particular, it's easier to see that as, as as a domain where there's a lot of activity short of war. But indeed, how we think about cyber attacks and and their impacts and their effects, some of which are very hard to see, they're hard to quantify, and sometimes they're really hard to talk about. Again, they're both very classified domains. So even militarily, we are we're talking a different level of scale and complexity in terms of multi domain. Beyond that, while we have always had a whole of government or comprehensive approach to national security, um, you know, the, the political, the economic. And certainly what we're seeing with the explosion of technological advance and how particular actors, not even just nation states, but um, the relevance of non-state actors, how actors are behaving, why they're behaving that way, what they're doing with technology, all of this is happening in in an environment where there are not many rules and norms, not clearly established governance. So we're facing some really interesting and some really difficult challenges. And we're doing it at a time where there's a real contest of ideas between great powers. So I think, uh, yeah, we, we're we facing a very different picture to what we faced before.
4: Great. I wanted to pick up that point on grey zone activities and, and activities short of war. Timely as ever, one state actor, China, has overnight, if the media is to be believed, the Chinese state media, has put out some guidelines on how the PLA might conduct its activities overseas short of war. I think things like humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, but also perhaps activities like the defence of Chinese nationals overseas or Chinese assets overseas, all sorts of questions about where this starts and ends. Do you have any any thoughts on whether we should be concerned about this?
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting one and and, and something that we will need a bit more time to unpack. We shouldn't leap to any conclusions or, or parallels with perhaps some of the, the, the super aggressive behaviours we've seen in the European theatre. We're not talking about declaring military operations or invasion. However, what, what does it mean? I mean, this is going to be a really fascinating question. This is a significant move. This will see significant numbers of PLA deployed in places we haven't seen them before. We're not going to have clarity straight away. We may never have clarity about what the parameters are for what they do and who they're engaging with. It would be a mistake for us to think purely about this in the same way that that we have a tradition of deploying our own militaries, the, the US, Australia, New Zealand... You know other nations who who have habitually done this. I mean, I think this this is going to look different. We shouldn't mirror image. We couldn't. We shouldn't expect it to to be done the same way. And we should be very cognizant of the fact that the role of the PLA politically within China and within China's system is very different to the role of the militaries in democratic systems, where there is a separation of powers and there is absolutely civilian control of the military and and some well known, well practiced, and well understood ways of operating. So there's a lot to understand about what this means. It's potentially very significant.
4: That's an excellent segue to uh, my next point, which is going to be Richard Miles, the Defence Minister, has obviously just been in Singapore, where he's met his and spoken to his Chinese counterpart, who does wear a military uniform, unlike unlike Mr Miles. Mm. So on the one hand, I guess that's breaking over two years of diplomatic lockout that the Chinese have enforced on, on Australia. So perhaps something to be celebrated there. But at the same time, I was, I was struck by the speech that Defence Minister Miles gave, where he, he really does point out some of the concerns over China's activities in the region and uses what I, I think isn't a form of words I haven't necessarily seen an Australian minister use previously. We're referring to Australia's military spending and AUKUS as producing an effective balance of military power uh, in the region. So so I, I wondered if you think that from Defence Minister Miles's perspective, how is he going to play this balancing act? How is he going to engage China while at the same time staying true to Australia's national interest.
0: Yep. Look it's 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 a really good question. It's it's the question. Is it possible to to balance engagement with protecting, promoting and preserving Australian and partner interests? It's possible. But that depends on China just as much as it depends on us. And to explore that a little deeper, I think you need to look at patterns of behaviour and most recently what we have to look to is, yes, some positive signs. Prime Minister Albanese receiving a letter from Chinese Premier Li Keqiang. That in itself is a terrific thing, absolutely, an offer to perhaps open dialogue but one that came with caveats and conditions, that the only things that could be discussed are positive things. Now, when we go into engagements, I think any nation needs to be prepared to hear Honestly, feedback, even criticism about its behaviours, there certainly must be room in a partnership, especially one that, that that seeks to have you know equality, respect, and mutual benefit at its core. The conversation needs to have an element of honesty, and so to be able to discuss concerns and raise concerns, you know, in, in a way that is respectful is really important. So you know, you can't accept, or you, I don't think it's reasonable to expect uh, Australia to. To, um, to go and, and have a dialogue but, but only talk about the, the positive things or for that to be curated, if you like, by the CCP and by, by China. So I think that's really important. We need to have – we need to make sure we're preserving transparency and truth. Those are things we insist upon for ourselves and they're things we we are absolutely right to insist upon from engagements with China too. So it takes two to tango. It's possible. But, um, you know, we we both need to to make sure that happens in, in a way that is appropriate and relevant and in both of our interests.
4: Great. Well, it takes two to tango. If I recall, Defence Minister Miles' uh, comments afterwards, I think he had a full and frank discussion. So it sounds like he's uh, he's following those principles already, hopefully. Yeah. Just maybe turning to the region a little, there's, there's lots of developments going on. One that's been making uh, some news recently is in Cambodia, Ream Naval Base. I think there's been a, a groundbreaking ceremony there where both Cambodian and Chinese officials have have celebrated some, some work there to rejuvenate that naval base is obviously creating some concerns. Is this something we should keep our eye on or is there anything else going on in the region that we should also be tracking?
0: Yeah, I mean I think it is. I think it it points to when you accumulate this decision with the announcement overnight of an increased PLA role and, and engagement in the region, when you when you look at the recent agreement with the Solomon Islands, you look at what was attempted to be secured which was an alternative security architecture for the Pacific without any engagement or conversation with resident existing powers that have really important relationships with the countries yeah we, we, we need to to be very cautious we do need to be trying to engage China and and, and understand what they're what they're trying to do here so again yes we look we, we need to be trying to open up channels of communication and I think another theme we need to return here to is transparency. The thing that's most concerning about the breaking news about the basin in Cambodia is is that the clear, blatant efforts to hide what's happening and to not be transparent with the people of Cambodia, with other countries in the region. I mean, these are the types of things that create concern and it's very legitimate that not being transparent and and you know potentially covering up or even creating a sense of secrecy is really unhelpful. And even back to patterns, if you look at the way China is implementing the Belt and Road Initiative, you know, development projects, a lot of things that, you know, you can hand on heart say, look, there's some, there's some goodness to be done here, right? There's a, this isn't a region that needs development. So, yeah, let's encourage anyone who wants to contribute to that to, to have a role. But there are secrecy clauses in all of these agreements. And, and again, you know, let's just ask for and let's demand transparency because if there's nothing to hide, there's no reason not to be.
4: We're going to have to wind this up fairly soon, but if I may, I'll just ask you one last question quickly. Transparency—a good way to create transparency—is dialogue, and you're going to be running our Sydney Dialogue. Could you provide us with a few tempters on what we can foresee coming out of that forum later this year?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Transparency will be a key theme at the Sydney Dialogue, and and the reason that we're holding this is that you know we recognise here at ASPE that in the critical and emerging tech space, including in the domains of space and cyber, there are some really interesting dynamics at play. We've seen a shift of innovation and capability development happening extremely quickly, technologies evolving and being applied really differently, but again, really quickly. These these are things that used to happen in government and defence labs, and they're carefully tested and deployed. Many of them never revealed publicly. It is now private corporations that is driving a lot of the the technology and the capability that defense wants so there's a couple of challenges in there who's who's setting the rules What are the ethical boundaries? Some of these technologies are are doing things that capabilities have never done before and, again, have those information-dominant, invisible, intangible kind of qualities. So there's a lot of work, policy work, to be done to make sure that as we pursue technological excellence and and certainly for, for all of our militaries, it's a key goal to have technological advantage. How do we do that in a way that protects people and society, and that preserves the rule of law how do how do we do this to to maximize the the great opportunity that technology holds but also the, the the immense risk and there are some really different and competing schools of thought on this and it is uh, it's all happening in an environment again devoid of rules and norms and governance so these are some of the things that that we'll get after well, I'm looking Sydney forward to it, looking
4: forward to it already thanks very much yeah, babe
0: thank you
2: With so much of our data online, and a growing reliance on technology in our daily lives, we are left vulnerable to cyber attacks by a range of actors. Carly Winkler speaks to Google's Shane Huntley about the work of the Google Threat Analysis Group and the current cyber threat landscape.
5: Hi, this is Carly Winkler, I'm the Deputy Director of the International Cyber Policy Centre here at ASPI, and today I am delighted to have with us the Senior Director of the Threat Analysis Group from Google, Mr Shane Humley Shane, welcome. Thank you. So, tell us about the Threat Analysis Group, you've been there for about 12 years and doing assessments of different cyber actors, what's, what's the role of the group?
1: So yeah, so Google's threat analysis group was, you know, formed 12 years ago at about the time I joined it. And our role is to be the threat intelligence and threat understanding area of Google. Our mission is to understand and counter serious threats against Google and our users. It came out of, you know, a serious cyber attack called Aurora 12 years ago, where Google was targeted, and we decided we needed a serious Understanding of threats in order to counter those. So over this time, we sort of built up and now sort of my role is to lead this team of almost 60 people to really understand in depth the world's threat actors and to work out what we can do about it and to counter them. And that covers government backed threat actors who are looking to either hack us or target our users disinformation threat actors looking to push disinformation messaging on platforms but also serious cybercrime actors such as ransomware operators and botnets and then what we do with that information is either counter them directly but also you know more commonly we just use that understanding to feed to the many thousands of people working on security and abuse at Google in order to you know defeat those protections so we're kind of the intelligence arm of Google in that way
5: so you guys must get a really unusual and broad picture of the cyber threat landscape. I mean, we, we spend a lot of time here talking about cybersecurity sector and, and, you know, the great work that's done by the ACSC protecting government departments, but often like the individuals and the small businesses who can't afford cybersecurity sector get left out. But I guess given that Google serves individuals from a mobile handset perspective as well, all the way through to providing infrastructure, you must see some pretty you know, holistic looking programs. How has that landscape kind of changed in the past couple of years? Yes. Yeah, so we
1: really do see like a range of activity with like literally billions of users. We see activity from all over the globe, coming from actors all over the globe, going to actors all over the globe. I think anybody working in threat intelligence has their own visibility. We, our visibility sits in terms of like what we see targeting us and the use of sort of Google systems and services. And, you know, Google is a big player on the internet. So in many cases, threat actors in some ways end up touching us. So we get this overall big picture. So, you know, in the last 12 months, for instance, like we actually provide a warning to every Google user that's targeted by a government-backed threat actor. We give them a big red warning on either their handset or in Gmail or somewhere else. And we warned 41,000 users last year. So what's changing in this space? I think the over my time, I've really seen that the existing actors are getting more and more sophisticated, they're getting more exploits and zero days and you know, having to compete and move forward at the same time our defenses are moving forward. But we're also seeing this proliferation that as even smaller countries see the effectiveness of cyber operations, they get in on the game either by building capabilities themselves or even more scarily being able to like purchase it from these you know, commercial surveillance vendors who are really really able to sell this government-level hacking capability to anyone for quite reasonable money for a country. And that really leads to uh, more and more attackers out there going after more and more targets.
5: So are you seeing, like, a lot of overlap between different types of approaches, like the disinformation we're complementing and the cyber attacks on national infrastructure? You know, how much overlap are you sort of seeing there with that with that big-picture perspective?
1: Good question. It's like At the moment, it's actually... Relatively isolated. We have got relative lines. There's the occasional time where we see sort of hacking used for disinformation campaign, right? Like you have the hacking side and then it goes to sort of like a leak disinformation side. There's certain threat actors like some of the kind of hack for hire operators happening out of certain countries and commercial surveillance vendors that are doing both cybercrime activity but also contracting for government that sort of straddle that line as well. And then you've got the big outlier of North Korea, for instance, who their cyber programs are focused heavily towards doing financial theft, especially of cryptocurrency, but also of financial systems where they really are a definite state-sponsored actor but, you know, use their powers to be – one of the biggest cyber criminal groups of the world at the same time.
5: Mhm mm-hmm. So a lot of things have happened in the past year, russia Ukraine is one, and and it feels a little self-indulgent to ask the question, but you know, how has Australia come out of this? What has changed in the in the Australian landscape with the events over the past year and the activity between Russia and Ukraine? I'd
1: say that, you know, like every country is always a target, all right? And I don't think it ever disappears totally. But if I'd say that how the landscape changes and ebbs and flows over time, a lot of what we saw, at least on the targeting touch Google, is that it's not as if the, you know, different threat actors stopped or started or even the overall volume changed that much, but there's sort of like a change of focus. And definitely many of the global threat actors move their focus much more towards Eastern Europe, right? So if you're going to sort of look at a proportion of activity coming from like, you know, the big one of the big players, if not the big player China, you know, over this period they've been focused more on Eastern Europe than they're normal and probably a little bit less on Oceania and Asia but again these big players can't afford to you know, walk and chew gum at the same time and do a few things at the same time so it's not as if it totally disappears but I think that's what you've seen is suddenly just the same way as the policy community and the media and everyone else suddenly focus on Eastern Europe so do all the cyber threat actors because their customers and the people that they are serving as intelligence agencies are interested in collecting intelligence about what's going on on the ground.
5: Yeah, yeah. So let's talk a a bit about the zero days and and how that landscape has changed a bit. So, you know, like five years ago, I don't know, we saw maybe a couple of big zero days pop up a year. Um, It seems that that has rammed up a lot in recent times. And and again, Google has a cell dedicated to looking at zero days and, and, you know, what's changed there and, and how do we go about trying to trying to find these kinds of bugs in these massively complex yep. software projects.
1: So take one step back of like, what is a zero day. It's like how we define a zero day is a – kind of vulnerability in software that nobody knows about. It's something the attackers worked out how to exploit, but there's no fix available. And so this is rare. Like most attackers don't need to use zero days. But when we do see them, we consider them one of the biggest threats because like even if you're kind of doing everything right, and patching and doing everything else, you're still vulnerable to zero days. So we put a lot of effort in trying to, you know, Project Zero in Google tries to find new zero days. We look at the ones that are actually being used by threat actors, and when we find them, we prioritize that very strongly. We put very strong pressure to get them patched within seven days. We like set deadlines, we push hard, and we found like a number of them in my team being used in the wild, and then we work to get them fixed very quickly. One of the reasons is not only are they so dangerous, but they're also probably one of the more expensive capabilities for an attacker to have. So by sort of reducing their ability to use them, we think we're hurting them. The question about we are seeing more zero days coming and, you know, one of my colleagues in Project Zero has written extensively on this, Matty Stone, but I think we are simultaneously getting much better about finding these mm-hmm. We are also seeing that complex systems now often need a number of zero days to attack. It's not just one. You actually to attack someone, you need a couple of them to chained together. But also I do think there is a proliferation that there is this market, especially in the commercial vendors and, you know, providers to government, that there's this demand which is actually creating more and more. So I think it's a mixture of all of those leading to the numbers going up. I do think, you know, we are making progress against this problem. It's not all doom and gloom, but there's a lot of big work. I would like to see it harder for especially the mid and lower tier actors to be running around with serious zero days against attackers.
5: Yeah, yeah, awesome. So... I guess one last question. We've spent a lot of time, I guess, in, in Australia looking at the cybersecurity landscape about all the different angles that people can be attacked and, and what government and policymakers can do better and what, where we need to streamline processes to, to provide better protection for Australians. What are your thoughts? Where, where should we be doing more? Yeah, it's. I
1: think there's like there's a number of different angles on this too, right? Like I think you can get a certain amount of the way sort of with like raising awareness and raising sort of like awareness with users, making sure that people focus on it. But I, that can't be the overall solution. Mm. Overall, I think that, you know, we have to make it that there are systems and that people are secure by default and that, you know, people shouldn't have to be thinking about cybersecurity all the time. And I think part of that is, you know, the setting of standards, but also making sure that we pull our way into the global space, right? Like how do we work out the global solutions? Like part of the advantage of going to somewhere of using a major provider such as Google is you have an amazing team like mine helping to protect and there is the security that comes from the large providers, from this like centralization that we got to make sure that we don't cut out because like – we beyond the point now where every single small business is able to securely manage their own IT infrastructure and defend themselves against major cyber powers. So that's becoming more of a threat. So as long as we kind of work out how to make sure that we create good protections in Australia, but at the same time, allow sort of The use of the global systems and global standards and don't, you know, isolating Mm -hmm. Australia so much that we end up creating sort of a, you know, backwater internet separated from the real internet. That would be a horrible scenario. And not that that's being pushed, but Mm -hmm. like trying to make sure we get all the benefits of modern computing and we move forward and we, you know, invest in modern security systems.
5: Yeah, I mean, we talk about a lot about data sovereignty and the need to have data controls, but that doesn't necessarily mean they all need to live onshore, right? Like if we're going to operate internationally, we probably also want to be able to have our data and our systems where we're doing a business.
1: Absolutely, right? So the, you know, data sovereignty is an important thing and we, you know, providing solutions in that place. But the idea that specifically, Exactly what data center at Google or Microsoft the data sits in is like some magic solution to security or some other issues. So, you know, as we talk about data sovereignty or any of these other issues, we really should identify what is, what are you trying to solve or what is the outcome and that the idea of like, you know, drawing a ring around every country and having localization is tough. And one of the other things that concerns me a little bit about data sovereignty is that like, you know, part of the benefit we have of being able to prevent threats is the global picture we have. Yeah. And if we make it so that security people can't have that global picture and global protections, then we could be reducing security in the name of increasing security under the guise of data sovereignty.
5: That's awesome. Thank you so much, Shane. I think that's all we have time for. But we really appreciate your time.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you.
2: In the integrated review 2021 the uk government detailed its vision of the uk's role in the world over the next two decades outlining a tilt to the indo-pacific dr marcus hellier speaks to professor alessio Patellano about the defense tilt the uk's naval strategy and defense capability priorities
6: well hello alessio and thank you for joining us and i know we're interrupting your morning breakfast routine there so thank you for taking some time out to talk to Aspie, you were just out here for our Navy Sea Power Conference, so you probably got a good sense of the topical issues here out in the Indo-Pacific of growing Chinese power, and once again, just recently, we've there's been more stories in the news of potential increasing Chinese military presence in the South Pacific and security pacts with South Pacific countries. So there's a lot going on here, but What I just sort of noticed is that a few years ago, you wrote a short piece looking at what would be involved in a UK return to the east of Suez. And you were talking about that. But And the the UK has returned to the east of Suez. It's got two patrol vessels on a a five-year sort of roaming deployment around the the Indo-Pacific. And when I look at that, I guess my immediate response is, "What difference in the world can two patrol vessels make out here?" But I'm sure you, as a scholar of British naval strategy, can explain to us what's that all about,
3: Marcus. Good evening. I think is is probably the appropriate way to to engage with this. Absolutely great privilege to to join you on this platform for, for this conversation, and thank you kindly for for the opportunity. You're absolutely right. There is a a change, a fruit you know, just to put it in context, five, six years ago, a conversation about the indo Pacific or the sort of the security dynamics, whether this is threshold activities, forms of coercion, or indeed political, diplomatic, economic changes, were not part of the mainstream debate in the UK. And I think in many respects, with the, particularly since the publication of the Integrated Review and the process that led to it, so 2019, 2020 onwards, there has been a significant change in the pace of the conversation. And if you follow parliamentary activities, we've got the uh, Defence and Foreign Affairs Select Committees that very uh, frequently engage with the subject. As a matter of fact, at the moment, right now, as we speak, the Foreign Affairs Committee is bringing together it's in the final stages of preparation of an extensive inquiry of Britain and the Indo-Pacific. So the change has been has been remarkable.
6: Are you expecting any outcomes out of that review that will
3: potentially increase that presence? Marcus, you're absolutely right. This is this is the key sort of question to ask. And I think it is an important question because in a way it allows me to make a brief but important point. One of the key changes introduced by the Indicate Review was that it sought to engage with fundamental principles, right? 10 to 15 years time, would it is the time uh, what is the kind of international uh, order that we're looking at? What are the challenges to international security and international stability? Very much what sort of in Australian vocabulary you would call it the strategic warning time, right? Mm-hmm. That, 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 that defines the space in which you have op- to operate. And so uh, there is a recognition that whilst Russia is the acute military uh, sort of a threat to the Euro-Atlantic area and the UK, there is also the recognition, however, that looking ahead, China is the systemic competitor. It's not going to go away. And, you know, in light of Ukraine, you could make an argument, and at the moment this is very much what has been debated, that a weaker Russia is more likely to gravitate more closely to Mm -hmm. China. And as a result of that, bring that conversation about the sort of Russia-China dimension closer, and as a result of that, the Euro-Atlantic and the Indo-Pacific are getting closer and more sort of interconnected, integrated, as as, as it were. So against this background, the Indo-Pacific tilt, as we call it in the integrated review, was the real novelty. If mm-hmm. this is the kind of international law that we're looking at, then obviously, from a UK perspective, we need at least to understand what the region is about, and we need to make a decision about how to engage with it. And I think the tilt, you know, we call it sort of the, the, the tilt as as a, as a shorthand, but I think it's also quite apt because it's not a pivot. It's not about moving away from the Euro-Atlantic looking somewhere else. It's about partly recalibrating. And that's where the OPVs, and the offshore patrol vessels that you mentioned, come in very handy because where you can maximise the limited resources that you can allocate on a regular basis to a particular part of the world that is so important to the future of the international system becomes a really key question. And from a UK perspective, we certainly know that you know we are a contributing partner. The Indo-Pacific is a place where if you're the UK, you engage with and through your partners. Mm -hmm. Now, with AUKUS, we created, together with Australia and the United States, a new framework within which nurture their relationship. The UK has a longstanding developing cooperation with Japan. And just two weeks ago, like Australia did, we signed also a reciprocal access agreement with Japan. So we started to put in place, if you want, the software for the UK to engage with the region. And the OPVs are a manifestation of the key space where I think with our capabilities, we can start making a difference, and that is that sort of everyday sub-threshold shaping space. We contribute. You know, you say, you know, what difference do they make? Well, it makes a difference to the little guys every single day through the hard work. Say when they were in Tonga, the fact that HMS Spade arrived the first on, on site, having a crane at the back and a couple of uh, containers was essential to start a very quickly ship to shore delivery of materials. That is the sort of things that contribute to shape the environment at first in terms of we're here to help. And secondly, we're here to help. Let's have a conversation about the things that worry you. And let's see if we can help you together with our partners and allies to find a solution to them. Mm-hmm.
6: Well- I'd also like to pick your brains as somebody who has very deeply studied the history of Japanese naval strategy to tell us about what's going on with current day Japanese naval strategy. So there's been quite a lot of signaling out of Japan that there's going to be some significant increases to their defense budget. We saw recently that Japan is going down the path of acquiring a uh, F-35 carrier capability. And and that both of those things seem to signal a departure from post-war Japanese naval strategy. So, what do you think is going
3: on on there? I think the Japanese have been on to, and and I have to say, in retrospect, in comparative terms, I think some of what the UK is trying to do in its own sort of limited scale speaks to that. And and that is this time shaping through a persistent form of engagement with the problems that you're facing on every day it's it it's key now of course if you are japan or australia it's different than if you are the uk when it comes to the indo pacific because you know for japan it's your neighborhood and it starts with home and sort of adjacent waters in the northeast asian sector but then you cannot take that and separate or insulate the south china sea the south pacific or the indian ocean because if you are japan 90% of your trade by volume and value goes through the sea and links really where you are to the gulf region to europe and to the north atlantic to the other side of the pacific so what happens at sea whether it is through the physical sort of movement of goods and materials through shipping or through simple digital connectivity via underwater submarine cables matters Now, for Japan, that meant that the old sort of, if you want, post-1945, largely Cold War posture by which if they keep the Soviet Union bottled up or patrol and monitor the key straits to know where they are during a peacetime and in case of a crisis, the kind of logic doesn't apply anymore. Because you're not going to shape, you're not going to have a hand on how to ensure a degree of stability in the security environment in the sort of everyday routine. And so that is the key shift that you see there in one sense. How does Japan, how can Japan? populate that shaping space. And you've seen this ever since the commitment to the Counter-Paris mission that created an opportunity to have ships going back and forth to deployment to start engaging defence commitment and defence engagement with partners across the Indo-Pacific. Then with the launching of the Free and Open Indo-Pacific Initiative, um, the, the Japanese, they, they have an expression called Sendyaku Tekini. Call, which means uh, strategic port calls. And it was this idea really whereby, if you want capabilities, high capabilities, military hardware was sort of being sort of integrated into the tools of statecraft and part of a design in which foreign and security policy walked the hand in hand. Where you had ships, you wanted to stop into specific places. So to support a particular sort of diplomatic action, that's one element of the story that has changed, and it's very much about shaving. The other element is the expectation of, you know, what you need to prepare for. Navies are at heart insurance policies, right? At heart, they are about preparing for that terrible. A day that you really don't want to see coming, but if it they in case it comes, it need to be and, ready. And what do you think
6: the Japanese are preparing for? What's the worst case scenario that they're preparing for?
3: You mentioned at the beginning of our conversation last week that the sea power conference. And and I think one of the great things about what well, was an absolutely thoroughly successful conference is that you got a, a strong impression it's not just a Japanese perception. It's a more sort of widespread perception that Nobody wants a war, obviously, but at the same time, the prospect of a more kinetic dimension to, if you want, the breakdown of of stability in the region is possible, or at least it's less remote as a possibility than it used to be. I think that's how the strategic update puts it.
6: Well, our strategic update, the 2020 defence strategic update here, very explicitly said We have the wrong kinds of capabilities that the Australian Defence Force has primarily defensive capabilities and we need more offensive capabilities that can essentially reach out and deter a potential great power adversary at at greater range. And talk about cyber, but long range missiles and and things like that. Is there sort of an equivalent sort of recognition occurring in, in Japan that they are, you know, for this potentially high-end kinetic warfare that they need to sort of retool a little and
3: acquire new kinds of capabilities? Yes, to an extent. But for the Japanese, the question is about, first of all, assumptions. One key assumption is that the majority of the situations in which they might find themselves into, they will not be alone. It would be part of coalition or partnerships and certainly working with, alongside with the United States. So that changes slightly how you think about the extent to which you need offensive capabilities, in particular insofar as the Japanese effort, because this is not just about fighting the high end, it's about covering everything. It's about shaping the terrains and indeed response across a variety of mission. The key issue is to have a balanced fleet. And above all, If you're Japan, particularly because one of the core assumptions is that you are part of of, of partners and alliances, ASW remain an absolute crucial and and, and sort of an aspect of your capabilities that you cannot surrender, that is absolutely essential, that is central, and needs to be really front and centre. Because the underwater, if you want, dimension of the strategic dynamics of where you will be operating, whether it's about hunting someone else's submarines preventing them from doing any harm to your movements, or by doing that, enabling your own submarines. And today, even long-distance strike, if you want, submarine-based is one of the key elements of this story. Very often the conversation focuses on, you know, anti-air capabilities of surface ships. But key here is also to understand how each element of the fleet is part of a bigger picture, and so protecting the capacity of underwater capabilities to deliver that kind of strike and to do other things, that's part of your deterrence game. It's part of your response game. But it's part of a game in which you are one of several different actors working together. And I think moving forward, that's going to be a really interesting sort of element of the conversation because when it comes to Japan, the Japanese are exploring how to develop this relationship with other partners. And Australia is certainly one. The United States is a traditional one, but even the UK. And so that conversation, I think, is going to be really interesting to to have looking forward to in the future.
6: Well, I think that's a future conversation that I'd really like to have with you. You you talked about submarines and and strike and working with partners. That's what AUKUS is all about. And I'd really like to pick your brains about AUKUS and SSNs and get the UK perspective on that, because it really is, you know, the, one of the biggest topics over here at the moment. But that's a conversation for another day. Hopefully we can catch up in the not too distant future to, to have that conversation. But for now, thank you very much. And we really appreciate you having this conversation with ASPE.
3: Thank you very much for the opportunity.
2: That's a wrap on this episode. This week, you had conversations with Dr. Alex Bristow, Deputy Director of ASPE's Defence Strategy and National Security Programme and Beck Shrimpton, Director of ASPE's Sydney Dialogue, Carly Winkler, Deputy Director of ASPE's International Cyber Policy Centre, and Shane Huntley, Senior Director of Google's Threat Analysis Group, Dr Marcus Hellier, Senior Analyst at ASPE, and Professor Alessio Patilano, Professor of War and Strategy in East Asia at King's College London. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.